How do social entrepreneurs and small businesses create an authentic brand people love so they can get the edge they need to stand out, create predictable revenue, and compete against the big guys? That's what we're here to discuss. I'm Adam Force, the founder of Change Creator, and this is the Authentic Brand Mastery Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Authentic Brand Mastery Podcast by Change Creator. This is your host, Dan Forrest. Um, If you missed the last episode, it was with somebody by the name of Sam Adams, and we talk about building a media brand. They are doing some really amazing work, just raised $4 million. um, So definitely want to check that out. Um, It is a great conversation for anybody, but even especially if you're kind of playing that media space a little bit, there's a lot to to know about building a media brand. And we should know from our own experience here at Change Creator. Um, And this week, we're going to be talking with somebody by the name of Chris Nealon. Now, he is the founder of a company called Cult, right? And he's the senior advisor to CMOs at Zappos, Harley Davidson, Best Buy, GoDaddy, and dozens of other brands. And before he actually started the company Colt, he was the marketing leader at John Deere and Home Depot. So he has a really great perspective on branding and how we're attracting audiences and what what is the right way to really approach that as a brand? Okay, so we get into a really great conversation in, um, here. Now, um, one of the updates I wanted to share is we have a couple spots opening up in our brand studio. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there that you know if you are ready to develop your brand authority and start setting your site up to scale. Um, We'd love to just kind of see where you're at with your business and have that conversation. So you would talk directly with me. Uh, Just go to... It's, it's studio.changecreator.com. You just visit there and you can learn more about what we do, but also book a strategy call. Um, And we'll just have that conversation to see if you're a good fit. We don't take everybody... Um, and we have, we've had a full roster for a while, so we just have a couple spots opening up and we're ready to take on some, some new accounts. Uh, so if you're ready for that step in your business, we know there's a lot we will do to support you to really create a online presence that you're really proud of, that um, creates a really good first impression, builds trust, all these important things, but is also set up on the back end to scale, meaning as traffic comes in, you're selling, you're scaling. We also get into supporting you with your path to purchase, which is your sales funnel systems. Um, so it takes a lot of the headache away for you. And we love doing that stuff. And so we'd love to hear from you. So just stop by studio.changecreator.com. All right, let's get into this conversation with Chris. Okay, show me the heat. I know you're going to dig this. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show today. How's everything going? I'm doing really great, Adam, and doing even better getting to chat with you for a little bit. I appreciate it. Yeah, it looks like you guys are doing some cool stuff. Uh, Interesting name, Colt. Tell me about that. Well, Colt was uh, intentionally provocative, and it was designed to change the goalpost about what businesses were really trying to do. Most businesses were trying to get customers, and frankly, we're just not that interested 
Uh, we thought a cult-like follower was so much more interesting. It was like a customer on steroids, uh, and yet not many businesses were pursuing that level of, of fandom. And so we decided, uh, let's help them, and let's, let's inspire them for what's truly possible. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, so I'm curious, what's exciting today? Like, what what is going on in your world at Colt and with the business that has been exciting? And then we'll kind of get a little backstory on how you got there. Well, I mean, I think what's exciting is the, uh, the dauntingness of the challenge, which is we're trying to reverse, um, I think, society's over-dependence on mass media and markdowns in order to grow their businesses. Um, the, the, the paid media landscape in particular has grown by over 100 billion dollars since we started our business, which is a glaring reminder of how woefully we're failing at helping people understand that these little quick fix Alexers that the uh, the Facebooks or the, the television or the media buyers of the world are trying to sell are not actually as uh, substantive or as effective as, uh, as we're led to believe. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point. Um, and because I, I do work with a lot of entrepreneurs in our brand accelerator and things like that. And there's an eagerness to throw money at areas where they're, they have, may have a weakness, right? So if we're looking for traffic and we need eyeballs, but that's not their expertise, it's just, I'm going to run pay-per-click ads. I'm going to run Facebook ads. Um, and as I'm sure you know, when you don't do the legwork of the right strategy, not only are you just burning that money, <laughs> but um, you haven't developed an organic, like real system where you're really connecting with people and nurturing a core group of people, right? Yeah, hundred percent. It's it's nobody needs most of what we're chasing. Nobody needs a Facebook page. Nobody needs a website. Nobody needs a commercial. Nobody needs a coupon. We create those as solutions yeah. to get to what we really need, which is profit yeah, and, and, and traction. Right. And, tools, and, yeah. and I, I get I get discouraged that we seem to lose sight of the goal, like the number of clients that we've chatted with or work with that, that are, you know, chasing profit through the lens of 50% off sales. And it's like, well, that's doing the exact opposite of what you're trying to do. And what we yeah. love about yeah. cult brands is cult brands not only sell a disproportionate merchandise at full price, they typically sell at a premium price point which that's what marketing should be doing. Marketing should be maximizing your margin, not minimizing your margin. And some of the things that minimize margin are not only discounts, but ex excessive GNA expenses that go into paid media. So I, I think if we just ask smarter questions, uh, we'll get to better, more substantive answers um, and, and, and frankly, more rewarding thing, improving the customer experience, improving the brand value proposition, improving the product offering is, is more enjoyable anyway, right? Once you get over the ego of seeing your, your brand on television for the first time or some Super Bowl <laughs> commercial or some video that goes viral, you realize that that's pretty superficial and oftentimes completely uncorrelated with uh, the actual performance of your business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, I, I love what you're saying. And, and um, I, I'm curious where, 
so how did you get into this category of work and supporting brands in this way? Can you just give us a little bit of background on that? I mean, the, the controversial answer is I say that I grew a conscience. Um, basically, I was, um, I was in the advertising industry for many, many years, and I was uh, frustrated at the ways that clients would throw money at things that we sold with we knowing full well it wasn't going to solve the problem. It just made the client happy because it felt like they were doing something, right? They were being busy, but they weren't being productive. And it just got to the point that we were tired of taking the client's money to do a solution that wasn't going to work. And we were tired of not even being asked the right question because most of the time in the ad agency business, clients solve the problem and then they ask the agency to make it go sound good or look pretty, right? They, yeah. You're in the storytelling yeah. business. You're not in the problem solving business. And uh, we didn't even have really a... Oh, Chris, I, I lost you there. Oh, you're back. Waiting for the... I'm sorry. I was saying we didn't even have a seat at the big kid table as an ad agency. We were just uh, waiting for the um, client to figure out what they wanted to do, turn it into a creative brief so that we can go make a media or message plan to go solve it. And I wanted to be more at the table where we were debating whether we even needed an ad campaign or not. Mm, Yeah. I'm going to stop my video, Adam, just to help with our internet bandwidth here. Oh, this would be okay. Um, so we use video and audio. We can just oh, run the audio. That's okay. Uh, well, you you tell me if it uh, if we have to repeat something. Okay, no worries, no worries. Our, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll shout out if it gets too dodgy. Um, I'm just gonna write down a quick uh, timestamp here. So I'll just edit that. It's no problem. Yeah. So. I mean, I like the thinking here. So I I like to talk a little bit more deeply on the process. I know you have a a top level process outlined on your site. So in the spirit of, you know, you know, I, I like, I forget who said it. They said, why be liked when you can be loved. And the guy that worked with Red Bull and Monster and all those guys, um, with their marketing and branding, they were really focused not on big at brand awareness. They were focused on creating really strong relationships to a point where the few people would tattoo monster on their skin because they love the brand so much. So it's like they were really co- like nurturing a small circle of people that became marketing power for them. Um, and I'm curious on your process for kind of leaning into this direction that that you're talking about what does that look like um to as a as a shift from just throwing money at the problem uh two things first one of the things that um i love about red bull well two things i love about red bull first uh, we know their cmo i guess we don't know their current cmo we honored red bull in our year one of, of an event that we do every year called the gathering, which hopefully we'll be able to talk about. But as we got to know Red Bull in order to give them this recognition as being one of America, North America's most uh, beloved cult brands, we, we real, we learned that the marketing department was never once asked by the finance department. If we spend this money, how many more cans of Red Bull are we going to sell? They didn't use marketing as a, uh, can selling device. They viewed retail distribution 
as a can selling uh, tactic, but they've used, they viewed marketing as a creator of brand demand. And that brand sometimes manifested itself in the sale of more product. And other times it manifested itself in the nurturing of this tribe or community. And what it's done most recently, which is what I really love about them, it's resulted in alternative revenue streams where Red Bull's marketing is not a cost center. Red, Red Bull's marketing is a revenue generator. And these events that they produce and the social media content that they produce generates income in and above sales of caffeinated beverages. And that to me is like, how many marketing departments actually have a P&L, right? Very few. <laughs> Most of them are just spin, spin, spin. They don't earn, earn, earn other than the things that they're promoting. So that just shows you the league that, that Red Bull's in. It's a head and shoulders above everybody else. Yeah. Um, you know, to answer your other question, uh, you know, we didn't, um, all we really did was observe and document the playbooks of the world's most cult-like brands. Uh, we had read a book years ago from Jim Collins called Good to Great. It was kind of like the NBA book yeah. of the early 2000s. And we were just impressed how he identified highly desirable businesses as evidence through exceptional stock performance and then tried to pattern match, just tried to reverse engineer what were these businesses doing, the businesses that didn't enjoy exponential stock growth, what, what they weren't doing. So we did that exact same exercise. We just didn't use stock uh, performance as our indicator. We used a metric called brand attachment or brand engagement, sometimes it's referred to. And that was done by a different group out of New York. Um, that was studying brand engagement for 30 years. They had hundreds and hundreds of businesses that were ranked by category. See what's the most engaging streaming service. What's the most engaging car. What's the most engaging. Ooh, what company was that? It's called brand keys. Um, you can look up, it's called their consumer loyalty and engagement index, the C L E I study. So when we found that we simply said, well, that's the scorecard. Yeah. brands are doing that made the top of the list. So we just started calling them. We just started doing the research of asking and evaluating and observing what were these brands doing that their mediocre competition wasn't doing. And we documented it all. So we wrote that first down in a book. We then started talking about it at this event every year called The Gathering. And then we built a whole consultancy around it at our agency now called Collective to just teach people what those principles are. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and and I, I, I'm a big fan of Red Bull too. Um, and they are a brand that really has leaned into like living their story. Everything that they do um, is pretty powerful through the extreme sports and all that kind of stuff. Um, so every touch point is very consistent and, and well done. So um, so I guess, can you can you share, like when you're going through your process, you talked about positioning and things like that. Um, can we talk a little bit about positioning in the marketplace? And I'm trying, I'd like to give people listening a little bit of a sense of what role these pieces of the puzzle play in actually creating your, your loyal fans, right? Your cult following, if you will, um, using your name um, and how that works. Can you make a connection for us on, on that? Yeah, I, mean, I think positioning is the articulation of what is the most distinct and desirable part of your business. The positioning is synonymous with like um, enviable differentiation. Why us, right? 
what I think is, and, and, and positioning statements oftentimes become copywriting exercises when they should be, they should be business strategy exercises yeah. uh, because there's two parts to that equation, distinct and desirable, right? So distinct means this is why I'm different than all the other choices. And very few businesses are not overwhelmed with viable choices, right? I mean, you can just think, take, take hamburgers as an example and pick any hamburger chain. Any one of them could go out of business and it's not like people would stop eating hamburgers. They would go find a decent substitute, right? Because right. they're just all really pretty good, right? There's very, yeah. it's very rare to find, you know, the one that's so exceptional or the one that's so horrible, right? Right. So right. the commoditization, particularly in North America, makes the, the distinctiveness part very difficult. Uh, and the reality is there's not a lot of distinction. It's why 95% of new products fail within the first 36 months is you come out with the new ranch dressing with a hint more peppercorn. And it's like, <laughs> really? There's already 19 choices on the aisle right now for ranch dressing. I didn't need that one, right? Um, and then the second part's desirability because you can be different, but it doesn't mean that you're better. Right. Uh, you might you might lean into something that's distinctly different, but that's distinctly different on purpose. Like nobody wanted that. And so you providing <laughs> it, it's not actually solving uh, a legitimate need. Right. Yep. And so yep. uh, I remember Elon Musk uh, with, you know, Tesla is one of our favorite cult brands and has built just this remarkable yeah. Uh, you know, sort of challenger brand, not just to any brand, but to all traditional automotive companies. And he, he talked a lot about the, the entrepreneurial challenge is that there's too much um, uh, mediocre advantage, like too, too many things are 20% better. Like if Tesla was a 20% better Prius, Tesla would fail. Tesla had to be a 200% better Prius in order to do what it's doing. And that marketing's job is to create things that are 200% better, not 20% better with advertising that makes it seem like it's 200% better. And that's what most mediocre brands are. They're like, we're mediocre. So let's create other distractions to yep. fool people yep. into thinking that we're actually better. And we're just like, why, why aren't we And the reality is it's because most marketers don't even have the skill sets to do it anymore. Most marketers are advertisers and most advertisers are storytellers and designers and writers. And so they're not really getting into the customer journey. They're not getting into the product experience. They're not getting into the brand purpose. Uh, and some of the things that they're not getting into even just managing tribes of consumers. One of my favorite brands is Yeti. Uh, Yeti, you know, they don't yep. have channel managers. They're not trying to maximize their email or their website convert. I shouldn't say they're not, of course they are, but their, <laughs> their core competency as a business is managing a segment of people. So they have, you know, customer segment managers who understand rodeo or surfing or snowboarding, and they try to add value into those communities necessary evil or maybe some outsourced service. Yeah. Now we got to, you know, do some SEO work or we got to do some email work or we got to buy some print ads. Right. But that's the opposite, right? Most, most companies spend all their time perfecting their channel management and neglecting the customer segments that they serve. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I mean, the channel management becomes the obsession for winning versus, 
And, and that's really the accelerator. So throwing gasoline on the fire versus, you know, after you have mastered uh, managing your customer base, like you're saying, right? So if we neglect that part of it, then all of a sudden it becomes really hard uh, to win in the marketing space because you're just trying to find the right story, find the right, you know, colors and all these different things to make people convert sales. And it becomes this big headache. That's like an ongoing frustration and, and a lot of money gets spent trying to figure it all out. And maybe you get lucky with a sales funnel that works out really well for you. Um, but to what you're saying, the core competency should be how are you building relationships with the right people, knowing the customer journey? How are you positioning the market? So there's like the 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 iceberg underneath the water, right? That big strategic part, but everybody's so focused on the superficial stuff. That's really just the accelerants, right? Well, and what's worse, I think, I mean, accelerant is an interesting metaphor, but the, the biggest problem is there's still piss poor attribution. So we're using flawed data to optimize these channels. And we're giving credit to the SEO team for an online conversion when in reality, it was something else that the consumer experienced that caused them to type in the keyword in the first place <laughs> that resulted in the conversion, right? Yeah. And so we, it gives us this false positive where because we think we can measure something, we can optimize it. And I'm not against measurement, I just think that we need to be a little bit more candid about what the actual influencers of behavior are and, uh, and, and understanding those audiences and understanding the insights into what those audiences need is, is where it needs to start. And not, and not enough businesses start there and, and honestly determine if we're the best position to, to satisfy that or not. Yeah. And so that's why we get so many mediocre things today. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I'm curious on what your thought process is for identifying the the right customers for um, a specific product. So I'm sure you get clients where they come in, I'm sure they're actively selling already. It's not, I don't think you're working with people who are just starting. So they're actively selling and maybe they have decent marketing, right? The, the, the channel management. So they're getting some sales, but you then get a look under the hood and you're like, well, I think we could do a lot better with our, our customer uh, base and you should actually be like, do you ever have to tweak and pivot the customer uh, strategy um, to yeah, all the time? The I mean, that, yeah, that's where we'll start. We'll start there before we'll start optimizing a channel. I mean, I'll give your listeners a little hack. Yeah. If any part of your customer segmentation is demographic based, you're screwed. <laughs> we invented demographic based segmentation because that's how media was selling itself. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, this TV show friends attracts 18 to 25 year olds. And so we want to say, well, if I want to be on friends, I better find out if my audience is 18 to 25, it's like the tail wagging the dog. We don't create segmentation to buy media. We should yeah. be buying media to serve the audiences that we're looking to, to cater to. And media sucks at doing anything more psychic, you know, things like print or whatnot, get into at least some lifestyle preferences. I cycle or I love dogs or I like bodybuilding Something, and you can yeah. start to you know, cater to some sort of an interest, but you no, know, the best segmentation studies are, they're, they're almost more like personality tests. <laughs> you don't, you don't ask people, do you like this or do you like that? You know, do you want it red or do you want it pink? Customers don't know. You have to triangulate it. You have to infer their preferences based on their values, 
based on the things that they're, that they're aspiring towards, based on, you know, you look at something like Starbucks. If Starbucks had started asking people, hey, instead of that dollar cup of coffee you're getting from Dunkin' Donuts, do you want to pay $6 yeah. for my coffee? Nobody's going to say yes, right? But when you start to understand what people were missing, which was I need if Starbucks, you know, people walk around with that Starbucks cup. It's a badge. It's, it's a it's a it's a treat. It's a, it's an indicator that I can afford a little indulgence in my life. Right. And that's what it's satisfying. It's making them feel special about themselves yeah. in a way that Mick Cafe never makes them feel special. So we got to understand that we're dealing with emotionally irrational situations. Uh, you know, nobody buys a Porsche because they did something on a spreadsheet that made it make sense. No, you buy <laughs> yeah. a Porsche because you want one, right? That's and it. then you'll rationalize it to your wife, however you want to, but that's not what got you into the dealership. Yeah. And so yeah. you got to, until you're playing at that level of truly what the motivators are, which requires that you ask different kinds of questions and that you speak to values, not your value. That's what I like to tell brands. And you talk more about what you stand for than what you sell. What you yep. sell is what's commoditized. That's transaction. But what you stand for is how people are making their decisions for yep. most things. You know, not, not for everything. You know, maybe not your home electricity, maybe not your toilet paper, maybe not the copier at the office. Uh, yeah. But, but over 70% of the uh, buying decisions we make are, are made emotionally first and justified yep. rationally after the fact. Yeah. And I, I think that's such a great point. Um, you know, it's funny how people get hung up on demographics and stuff. And, you know, I, I literally just had a call with a client this morning and the whole, you know, perfect customer persona was more about, I was like, these are human beings. I'm like, we need to know beyond what their interest is in your product. Like, who are they? How do they feel about things? What are their ambitions in life? Like what's important to them? And we go really, really deep to your point to, because this is what, I, I think, you know, to your point, like we're trying to align to beliefs and, and, and understand what people are looking for, right? That's important to them. I like the Starbucks example. I think that's a really good way to put it. And there was something missing in their life. So I guess that leads me to in my next question, which is, have you ever worked with a client where it's like, well, these are the people that are really interested in this category that you kind of own, right? And what if their product really isn't filling the need as it should once you really identify that customer? Yeah, we, a client comes to mind that's in the premium pet food category. Okay. And they, over the course of the years, let the retailer determine part of their portfolio. And they ended up creating a bit of a dog's breakfast, pun intended, of too many brands and too many subcategories. And they and some of them had conflict with each other. So if you were going for a certain yeah. type of pet diet, um, then you wouldn't know how to choose, you know, which one of these, but they existed because of, they had private label strategies, they had wholesale strategies, they had direct to consumer strategies, they had retail strategies. And so it was almost like the operations of the business created unnecessary confusion in the marketplace for consumers who frankly, their mindset was not, this is food for my dog. It was this is how I care for the equivalent of my child. Like these were doting pet parents who were spending more calories thinking about 
the, the, the well-being of, you know, my dog eats his own vomit. I never really thought that much about what I'm yeah. feeding him because he just never seemed that picky. He just eats whatever he can get his hands yeah. on, right? So I've always been like the 20, you know, the 50 pound bag at the cheapest possible price kind of a guy. Sure. But in working with this client, I realized that there are people who treat this animal, you know, they're, they're serving them raw steak at night. Like they're, 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 the, the sure. way that this animal is eating is better than how I'm eating, yeah. right? And so that, that, that requires, like you're doing your brand a huge disservice if you aren't exploiting that level of care and nurture that certain people want to have for their animal, partly because the animal needs it and partly because it's going to make them feel much better about themselves, yeah. Yeah. right? For the way that they're able to demonstrate this love and nurture. Yeah. And there's people that buy $14 treats when they come home from work just because of the guilt they feel that their dog's been you know, trapped inside all day. Yeah. You can exploit that. You can make a lot of money on people that are living with that sort of guilt. Right. And so, and if you don't know that those are the motivators, you're leaving a lot of margin on the table. Yeah. So, so based on that kind of discovery, I'll call it, um, clients that you've worked with such as this pet food they will start rethinking some of now does that make them rethink the product or just how they're positioning the product it, it makes them rethink a who their customer truly is both in terms of the, the type of end user but also who's going to be making the decisions is it going to be their retailers is it going to be their franchisee is it going to be the end user because you can have marketing departments that cater to all those different groups and then right. you end up fighting for resources and everybody's kind of at war with each other as opposed to working towards a common good. Yeah. Yeah. So helps them, yes, absolutely. The product portfolio in their case, they needed to discontinue some brands and they needed to simplify and streamline. I'm reminded of that famous quote with Steve Jobs talking with the head of Nike back in the day. And Steve says, listen, you make a lot of good stuff, but you make a lot of bad stuff too. Why don't you just stop making the bad stuff and only focus on the <laughs> good stuff? And, you know, Nike was like, well, you know, that's a problem for them because they kind of had this good, better, best distribution play. And But that's what Steve did when he came back to Apple the second time was he, he's often said his greatest strength as a CEO was the things he said no to. Yeah. Not, not the invention of the iPhone, but all the other cool things they could have done, but they wouldn't have been uniquely distinct and desirable at. And so they just got out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So in summary, I'd like to just give people like we, we kind of dug into some really important stuff on how to think about your brand. Um, as far as audience engagement goes, I mean, right here on your homepage, we are audience engagement experts. Um, how would you summarize what creates strong audience engagement strong audience engagement well the easiest way to, to think about the definition is to think about the symptoms of it a strongly engaged audience is is going to buy more product more often at higher margin right so we spend all of our energy just going and getting more customers and that's that's appropriate to get more customers. It's inappropriate to spend most of your time trying to do that because getting existing customers to buy more product more often at higher margin is an equally profitable proposition. It is easier to do. And if you do it well, they will go get more customers for you. 
And what we're really trying to create is that word of mouth and that advocacy, as well as they're going to just make you better. They're going to you know, give you ratings and reviews and they're going to give you feedback. They're going to answer your surveys. They're going to complain. And that's great because that's going to make you better if you're listening. If your culture is such that those are nuisances, I, I was calling pods just to give them a shout out here, the moving company thing. And yeah. the call center experience was delightful in contrast to the airlines and my credit card company and people that make it seem like calling me is inconveniencing them pods made it seem like we are set up to receive this phone call because we want to hear from you something that simple has made me now talk about pods on a podcast with you right it's like and it's a shame that it's the exception not the rule that that you know having good feedback loops is is a critical part of the customer experience so uh, i think that most people would admit that having sort of this non-commissioned sales force of customers that are out there raving about you to others is desirable but then you're also going to have to confess you're probably not spending enough calories thinking about or you're not spending enough money generating that sort of word of mouth. You're kind of just hoping that it happens as opposed <laughs> to engineering it into your business experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and I, I think, you know, that really comes down to, you know, as you're going through your brand strategist, what is that company culture? And I think those people who have the throw you through a loop on those automated phones and stuff like that, that, that to me is a sign of poor company culture and leadership in the company, because if you really cared, it would be more like pods who now you're talking about. Right. So that customer experience is, is so important and uh, they're neglecting that. So uh, Chris, I appreciate it, man. Where where can people learn more about what you're doing and, and connect? No, probably the easiest thing is to just visit cultideas.com. Uh, on that webpage, you can get a bunch of free content. You can take a score, uh, an assessment where you get a scorecard of how cult capable uh, your business is. You can find tickets for the gathering, which is an annual celebration where you don't have to listen to me. You just listen to the heads of like Marvel or the <laughs> Dallas Cowboys or Levi's talk about the things that they did to become uh, exceptional, as well as you can uh, get a copy of our book there. So we try to, we're doing our best to shout from the rooftops that we have seen a better way. And we, we want more people to kind of discover what we have. Awesome, man. Really appreciate your time talking about it today and sharing all your ideas and thoughts and the work that you're doing. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the Authentic Brand Mastery Podcast. Don't forget to stop by changecreator.com for more information, fresh articles, content, and our services if you're looking to build a brand that people love. And please stop by iTunes, leave us a five-star review. We appreciate your support.